Hi, everyone. I'm Mackie Craven, a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in business software companies at the expansion stage and work closely with their teams to help them build large and enduring businesses. This season of Build is dedicated to a topic we've become increasingly passionate about, product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with leaders from PLG companies to find out about what it took to build and scale their businesses, advice they would give their younger selves, and some pretty fun and surprising facts along the way. Now, on with the show. Today's episode features Ashik Ahmed, CEO and co-founder of OV portfolio company Deputy. Ashik explains how they went from converting two companies for every thousand in the early days to over 160,000 accounts today. How OV venture partner George Roberts gave him some of the best business advice he's ever received, and why asking for credit card information right away is like bringing up marriage on a first date. Ashik, welcome. Really excited to have you on season seven of Build. Mackie, long-time listener, listen to every episode, and as part of OV portfolio, I couldn't be more excited to be part of this. So thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Well, look, we obviously know you quite well, and many of our listeners do as well. But for those that aren't familiar with Deputy, could you just introduce what you do in a few sentences? So Deputy is a employee scheduling and workforce management software, obviously cloud-based, mobile-first. It helps organizations with getting the right employee at the right place at the right time and ensuring they're remunerated properly for the work they have done. So that's probably a one-sentence summary, but obviously I can peel the onion. We help small business. We have mid-market and enterprise customers of Deputy. Started here in Australia 11 years ago now. That's the biological age. I actually consider ourselves about three years old. But now about 160,000 different uh, businesses around the world use Deputy in about over 100 countries. By the way, whether you measure in three years or 11 years, that's a lot of businesses. I mean, and going back to that, you know, would love to hear a little bit more about why you decided to tackle this problem and, and build Deputy. I started Deputy because in my past life, I was working for my co-founder and he had a small business that he started in 1992 and it took him 10 years to build that business from two people to 200 people. And it was a lot of blood, sweat and tear. Okay, average life expectancy of a small business is about three to five years, but he obviously persevered through all the pain and suffering to grow the business and sacrificed a lot in terms of family and other social commitments. As chance that I met Steve, I worked with him for about three years, but we built an in-house solution like Deputy, and that was able to actually scale his business from 200 people to nearly 1,400 people in space of three years. So 7x the growth. And in a quite a lot of it was you know, down to how well and how systemless we were in running the people management part of the business, which is the most complex of any business. doesn't matter whether you're a technology business or a non-tech business. In his case, he was in the aviation business, which is probably the most complex of any business. You know, it's 24 hours. It's highly militant and unionized. Compliance is very key. You know, the joke we had is 99% boredom and 1% sheer fear. And Deputy was born in an environment like that, and it really succeeded. And then every other small business owner who were struggling or even large businesses, even including airlines, would go, hey, what do you have? Can we get it? And I actually had reached my goal with the past business. I actually resigned and I wanted to pursue career in working in the big four. But especially my co-founder goes like, what we have done, why don't we take it to the rest of the world? 
And that's how the journey of deputy started. We called it deputy because this product was the second in charge for Steve, another name for second in charge for deputy. And the domain back then, which is not a big thing now, was available. Although somebody wanted 160,000 euros. We got it for about 30,000 USD. That was the biggest marketing expense for many years in deputy. So yeah, that's how it got started. And I have a lot of validation that I've been able to help about 160,000 business owners and want to go for millions and billions. So still a long way to go. Yeah, but great to hear some of the origins. And as you think about the design principles for the business, whether in its earliest days, you know, when you decided to begin taking this internal tool that you'd built out of its first home or extending it beyond that, or to the design principles that you use today, you know, what are the things that you believe in and guide you as you build? Look, I don't have the pedigree of coming out of another tech company and learning a lot of things. I only knew what I knew. But one of the things I walked away with the aviation industry, and which actually has led to the product-led growth philosophy of deputy. And it's actually a bit of a funny story. As I was working in the airline industry, quite often I had to travel. I pretty much flew into every runway that a 737 or A320 can land in mainland Australia. And quite often when the flight would be full, I would get to fly in a jump seat. The jump seat is the seat behind the captain and the first officer. And I remember once I was flying, after my first flight, I realized that pilots do no work whatsoever at all, okay? They just sit there and they press a, literally a, a console button that says autopilot. And the autopilot, which does all the flying, the pilots are there as expensive backup for the software failure. And that's basically what led me to have this philosophy. If you can get software to do it, but you have people as backup, you can do amazing things. And people take this for granted. But right now, Right now, you have to fly for something like 22,000 years continuously for you to be subject to an aviation fatality, for example. Okay, That is the level of safety, efficiency, and security the aviation industry has because of software combination with human. And as I started deputy, I, I always carried that in my mind. It's like, you know what, if we have to get people involved to deliver value to our customer, that will never be scalable, but we should find always a way of software or product doing the job. But you have people on standby, like, you know, the software be failed. But every time a software failure happens, then you learn why that has failures happen so you can bake that into the software again. So that's kind of a philosophy I took, watching how well the aviation industry has done that into building deputy as well. That's a fantastic story, right? I think one thinks of aviation, particularly, I think the way most of us experience it, not quite as cool as in the jump seat, but flight delays and, you know, tight seats and, and not necessarily sort of the pinnacle and pier of user experience or innovation, but the idea that, you know, when something's so critical, right, massive amounts of human lives are on the line, that we've got software and, you know, in combination with people sophisticated enough, you know, it's fascinating, right? I think you hear the phrase, you know, it's not brain surgery. And increasingly, all of the, you know, highest risk, highest precision activities are, are being governed by software. And so as we look around the world into our day-to-days, and as we think about kind of business software more broadly, you know, bringing those principles out makes all the sense in the world. That's a great story, Ashik. By the way, I can do aviation analogy all day long. The flip side of it is don't make your user interface like an aeroplane cockpit. You should just Google Images 747 cockpit. You'll see there's about 90,000 you know, switches in there. Joke also is that, you know, the manuals of a 747 is heavier than the 747 itself. So <laughs> at the end of this, it's the philosophy. The philosophy yes. is that, hey, if yes. you 
product with the job. It's like human kind of on the loop, not necessarily human in the loop in there. It actually helps you build a really, really scalable business. It makes total sense. And you know, many of the things that you know we found leaders and in even in some cases, right, founders of product-led businesses talk about is how to keep the flywheel going, but not the zero to one or how to get the flywheel going in the first place. And so taking this product-driven philosophy from you know day one, how did you get deputy off the ground? How did you start exposing your initial users, your initial customers to you know the first versions of the software that you'd built, keeping this product-led philosophy front and center? You have to start somewhere. I mean, we did get you know our first customer, who is still a customer to this date, you know, kind of introduction to the friends network. But once that business was working, I mean, something that we found quite unique to our business case is something that we discovered is that you know you can get customer, but a customer and a user are two separate things. Okay, in our case, a customer may not necessarily use the software, but our users have no options but not to use deputy. And if you can delight them, if you can provide a great experience, as they go from one job to another job, they take a deputy with them. And this actually has been the actual case for deputies' growth. I mean, the kind of market we service, this is hourly paid workers in hospitality, retail, healthcare, transportation, construction, education, various verticals. Quite a lot of these industries have very transient workforce. And once they experience how awesome life is with deputy in terms of you knowing when you have to come to work, you being able to trade shift if you didn't want to work a particular day, or even gate pad accurately. Okay, things that we take for granted, there's actually quite a lot of pain points for the hourly paid worker, which is 60% of the global workforce. They actually become your advocate and then they take deputy with them. The way they take deputy with them is that they look up deputy and at the front page try deputy for free. And that's where that whole kind of viral loop is, the flywheel in terms of how we have expanded. I mean, right now here in Sydney, also in New York, for example, I don't think you can walk 100 yards in any direction without bumping into a deputy customer. And it's purely because of the ease of the software and how easy it is to just get on without having to you know, get involved with or talk to someone. I mean, we are here to talk, don't get me wrong, but we try to let the product do the first mile and pick up speed before we have to actually get involved ourselves. It makes sense and aligns completely with the philosophy you outlined at the beginning, right? Let the product speak for itself, let the product create value and, and be there. You know, if and when you need to. You know, that stands out, you know, not just in deputy where it's particularly true, but as we see some of the most successful product-led businesses, this idea of really delivering value before you think about capturing value, right? And particularly delivering value to a user before one thinks about capturing value from a kind of customer or buyer. And, you know, how did you sort of develop that understanding? Was that a concept that you had from day one or, or that you sort of observed and learned as the business grew? We are in Sydney, Australia. The population of Australia is about what, 24 million, I think. Sydney is about five. The market is rather small. The market is rather small. And if you wanted to be a global business, you couldn't be a global business by being here in Sydney, by having a massive workforce. Actually, that's what actually has resulted for many Australian businesses over here, be the Atlassians or Canvas or Safety Culture or us in Deputy, that you know what we had to find a way of thinking about how we can have global domination without having global presence. The way I look at it, at the end of the day, if you want to make an impact in this world, there's three things you can move to make an impact. 
you can move electrons, you can move molecules, or you can move emotion. Now, electrons are the cheapest thing to move. I can send an electron from here in Sydney to Boston and get it back at very negligible cost. Nothing, to be honest, okay? But if I wanted to send a piece of molecule, okay, depending on you know, weight and distance is traveling, that's the cost to it. And finally, if you want to move people's emotion, it's really hard to move emotion, okay? I mean, in some cases, it's not even movable for that matter. Product-led growth is all about maximizing the electron movement to influence anything to do with emotion or molecule, actually without moving those two things. And that's how I look at it. And that means that having solid understanding of what is the maximum capacity of electron movement you can do, bits and bytes basically, and what are the hurdles you have from an emotion or molecule part that stops you from achieving that goal and ensuring that you have got full mastery of your electron movement to augment the other two. And that's where you have product-led growth and that's where you have true infinite scalability. As a former MIT engineer and mathematician, that specific explanation certainly appeals to my sensibilities. But as, as you think about taking those concepts, which are fundamental and are true, right, about distribution and distribution of, or in your words, sort of movement and relative cost to that movement. What are ways that that's manifested itself in the product as it sounds like, right, a core design principle and a core, certainly fundamental understanding of the power of product-led growth? So everything in life is a blessing and a curse. And, you know, my curse is I'm an introvert, okay? Probably an extrovert these days, but internally I'm an introvert. And that meant that I need to invest a lot in terms of how I can build a business without having to talk too much. And in order to actually do that, in the very early days of Deputy, I actually printed a poster. And the poster was that of Homer Simpson. And it said that if something is hard to do, it's not worth doing. And that's Homer's principle. That's actually in a poster in our product and engineering floor. And we said, he's the target customer. And I know Homer operates a nuclear power plant in his daytime job. So that's how we actually have looked at it. And I remember, like, no, I never had to speak with someone to use Dropbox. I never had to speak to someone to use Facebook, you know, products that I probably get a lot of value out of. And even though we're a B2B enterprise software, why couldn't we have that? Obviously, it wasn't getting done. None of our competitors were doing it. But we definitely went into it with that mindset. And I can tell you that the journey started with you know, a lot of failure. Like, and I can tell you that for our first 1,000 online sign-up, only two had converted. Compared to that, right now, probably, you know, close to 300 or 400 of them would be converting for a 1,000 sign-up. But, you know, you don't go from two to 400 overnight. You actually go through a lot of journey, a lot of growth hacking, as they call it. And for us, what that meant is having a dedicated product squad whose job was to ensure that we deliver tremendous amount of value when somebody signs up without asking for a credit card. I mean, asking for a credit card is like, you know, asking for marriage in the first date. Uh, you don't want to do that. You actually want to go through and deliver a lot of value. You want to deliver a lot of wow moments and make them fall in love with the product. Make them fall in love with the product, make their other users, get other users to come on board and immediately start delivering value. And then, you know, over time, you know, you go and convert or get married in terms of, which is what, in our case, putting down the credit card during or at the end of your trial period. So it's kind of been a journey. It's kind of been a mandate. It's something that I drill into everyone's head. I can tell you that I don't actually look into, I mean, OpenView is an investor. I don't know how much you like hearing what I'm about to tell you. I don't actually look at our revenue numbers until the board meeting, but I look at our conversion rate on a daily basis. So that's how much is in the DNA and core of deputy 
including everyone on the floor. No, that's great. And as you think about that, right, I think it was a beautiful outline of delivering value before you, you know, ask to get married, right? Delivering value before you try to capture any of that value. As you think about, right, the traditional you know, let's call it human interactions in a customer lifecycle, whether those, you know, over a more traditional sales lifecycle might be sales and then some kind of success supported in an ad hoc way. You know, who are your pilots? Who are the people and, and how have you designed those roles that when either a user or a customer over their journey with you does have a question or does reach out or there is an exception that isn't built yet into the software? How do you approach handling that? So we have a number of different metrics we follow. In the business, obviously, you know you have the, you know, usual SaaS metrics on one side, the traditional, you know, CAC, LTV, payback period. Obviously, you want to measure all those things, but we actually start measuring some metrics really, really early on. And one of the metrics we measure and we put that in the product is what we call is our engagement score. Every user who signs up or uses the product gets an engagement score, and this is how much they're interacting with different parts of the product. And if we actually sense that, hey, somebody is not getting high engagement, they might have a use case that's very complex or it requires an external third-party integration or something like that they're not figuring out, we will try to get the pilots to jump in. And some of that is actually also product-led. Like through the product, you can actually book a demo. For example, obviously that's product being proactive. And if we sense that, hey, that has on still hasn't happened, we might actually get you know, our SDR team to reach out. But there's also email automation that's happening. Basically, we're trying to maximize as much, as I said, moving electron. You know, this is the funniest thing. And this was actually a massive debate internally in the company. Originally, there was this thing about, hey, ask them to put down the phone number. You know, if they have a phone number, they convert higher. Let's make that a compulsory field. You know, it came down basically me versus the entire team of over here, like, you know, hey, if we get phone number, we'll convert more. I'm like, you know what? I mean, if I sign up for something and I'm there asking for phone number, this is being too intrusive in there, for example. And we don't have the phone number. And actually, what we later did, actually, in some cases, whether the phone number field is compulsory or not, is determined by the software on the fly, depending on a clear bit lead scoring or our matco lead scoring it would be doing in there. That do we need that phone number to ensure that you know this is the right customer or not, as opposed to just having like you know, a hardcore thing that the phone number is compulsory. So this is how we try to ensure that the pilot involvement is when we have detected the software is failing. And of course, you know, that should go back into our learning in finding how we go and stop that from happening in future, the failure part of it, I mean. Yeah, that's a fascinating example. And on that learning point, what are the mechanisms that you've built in either directly learning from you know, user behavior or reflecting on user experience that as you put engineering resources towards the go-to-market, right, or lean into product-led growth from an investment perspective in the product that tell you if you're you know, heading in the right direction, either you know, with small changes or large ones? Look, I fundamentally believe in this journey, those who will take this journey like I have taken, is that there's no such thing as a silver bullet, okay? But there is silver buckshots, okay? It's a combination of lots of different things that delivers that ultimate wow factor. Focus is very much a key and ruthless prioritization. I mean, biggest turning point for this company was, you know, post-series A with OpenView, we set up this dedicated growth squad. And I, I set up this growth squad with a product manager and the best discipline 
people, like, you know, the best iOS engineer, the best Android engineer, the best web developer, the best QA, the best data, and all that team in there. I actually even made that a mandate for that year that whatever they increase the conversion rate by is what they take as bonus as a percentage of their salary. And they got into this cadence where they would actually go and do nightly releases. Every night they had a product update and you know they would be measuring the engagement scores of signups the day before and seeing where as a user that we you know had obstacle in terms of getting that value or the wow factor and we'll be making overnight adjustment to the product for next day. Is that iteration that we carried. And you know what? There are cases that they have made some really terrible mistakes and things and it had caused other issues. And in order to protect them, that whole team actually reports to me. It doesn't report to somebody else and then reporting to me in there. That team reports to me so I can actually give them that cover, which has actually resulted in significant growth for this business. So this is actually an organizational focus, not just a product focus. That's how I would like to inspire other CEOs, other entrepreneurs who are thinking about building a scalable business, making this an organizational priority in terms of how you use product to grow, how you use product to convert, how you apply electrons for solving the growth problems before you apply the molecules, which is human. That's fascinating. When you put that team together, you mentioned a few skill sets. You know, What were the backgrounds of the SWAT team? How many people... What were those skill sets initially to be able to have that you know, small enough team to be able to iterate quickly, but diverse enough skill sets to have impact and measure that impact at the rate that you were driving toward? The way I looked at it is that what are the platforms people are going and signing up to? Okay, So we need the platform specialty, and they needed, obviously, understanding of the product, and they need to have a growth mindset. You know, Different companies have values, but one of the value we have in this company is of all those improvement. But the way that value is implemented in this company is called shocking rule. And one of our shocking rule is, I apologize in advance for the profanity I'm about to use, perfect is bullshit, okay? So <laughs> having that mindset is that, you know what, we won't build the most perfect, beautiful onboarding flow, but you know what, we'll ship something today, we'll learn from the failures and get it better tomorrow. And not everybody can be like that. Not everybody, say, who's come from a design background can be like that. Not everybody who comes from iOS, you know, developer can be like that. But you need certain people with certain skill set who is able to go and apply that kind of mindset. Like, you know, basically putting hacks after hacks to prove a theory until such time, like, you know, it works. Okay, now bake that in as a more solid thing. That is the kind of mindset you need in the people to build a growth team. As I said, perfect is bullshit. So shift something. Any momentum is better than no momentum, okay? That's right. And, and and one of the interesting dynamics there, you know, you highlighted is definitely can be different personalities for you know, the individuals that are excited to work quickly, to try the growth hacks, to iterate, that are not focused on perfect or at least their opinion of perfect. How did you do the translation of innovation? Right. So let's say the growth team, you know, is hacking, pushes something, it looks like the experiment works over time. Did they then implement it? Did they translate it to core engineering? Did it go through product? What was the almost if I think of a university model of you know experimentation and some tech, but then tech translation back into the main line of product and engineering? Okay, so the way I look at it, that the product team, what they build is long-term, okay? They have gone through all the user research and things. I mean, whatever change we make over here can have a massive impact. What the growth team can do is take what the product team has done and deface it, feature flag it, Put something else on top of it, 
okay? And, you know, apply to a particular segment of users, which are, say, our trial users or something like that. The growth team, I mean, it has been vice versa. There are cases that growth team has gone and validated something and then passed on to the product team to go implement. But there has been cases where the product team has built something great and the customers may want it, but they're not able to swallow it really easily when they sign up without help and assistance. A growth team can go and then actually, you know, remove any friction in that journey. So it works both ways. In our case, I would say it's more has been the case that the product team has built something awesome that adds significant value. The growth team has made the value realization and value adoption much, much better and easier. Got it. Makes total sense. And so what advice would you give yourself before beginning the deputy journey that you probably wouldn't have listened to then, but you believe deeply now? I wish I actually practiced some of the things I believe and not doubted myself in there. As I said, I mean, I'm an engineer at my core and I would have done things the way I would be doing right now. I just, I think like when I was seven years late, I was doing that in many cases. That's how I feel that my biological age is about three and definitely not 11. For first few years, we tried a lot of different things, but we never like, you know, just put the pedal down very heavily on being maniacal about product-led growth, which we have been in the last three years. I mean, right now, on a weekly basis, we grow more than we did in our first four years, for example. So believe in your strength. That's what I would be saying. That's great. And you know, maybe in a, a totally different direction, aside from and perhaps the opportunities you've had and the opportunity to build deputy, what's the best gift you've ever received? I'm not trying to give OpenView a plug in any way because it's not scripted at all, Mackie. But I'll tell you, as part of the Series A investment, when George, Dan, and Ricky flew down to Australia, you know, after signing the term sheet, we were having dinner. And I remember George Roberts gave me probably one of the best advice of all time that I actually practice on a daily basis. And he goes like, you know, as CEO, you know, one of my primary jobs is to make, you know, decisions and probably the hardest decision and a decision matrix, okay? It's... Company, customer, employee, partner. Ideally, you make the decision that is tick across all four things. But if you have to make a cross, the cross should be at the bottom as opposed to the top. And even, you know, this whole journey of product-led growth, I can tell you, like, you know, this has come into play. There's been cases that, hey, growth team wants to do something which can annoy existing customer. Don't do that. That's the thing. But you know what? If it's right, then it's a growth opportunity for the company. It's even cases like that I'm able to, you know, apply these metrics or, oh, phone numbers, okay? Team can convert more, but it's not good for the customer who's trying to experience the product. You know, this is one of the simple things in life. I suppose I'm giving a business gift more than a personal gift. But I tell you what, having that simple advice from George has made a significant difference to deputy's journey in my life, in how I operate SEO and how my personal life is for that matter. So thank you, George. Please pass that to George for me. I absolutely will. You know, it's wonderful to hear. And, you know, I, I certainly speak for all of us here at OpenView. We couldn't be more excited for the fact that we're working together and, and looking to continue to build deputy from, you know, 160,000 businesses using it to, uh, as you said, millions and, and tens of millions beyond. So, Lashik, thank you for your partnership and thank you for joining me on Build today. This was fantastic. As I said, I'm a long-time listener and feel kind of celebrity status, and I know that I'm part of it as well. So thank you, Mackie, and thank you for all the support everyone at OpenView has provided me and Deputy in our journey. But we got a long way to go still. we got a long way to go. But thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to Build on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite purveyor of podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture 
and subscribe to our newsletter that's read by over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Also, while you're there, check out new content daily on our blog. Until next time, 